The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. When we go to work, we're not just workers. We're also partners, parents. We're the same people we were at home. We might be struggling ourselves with anxiety. We may be in intensive therapy that demands a tough transition back into the workday. Or we might have children who are dealing with a medical or mental health issue, which wears on us and on our ability to perform effectively at work. We can't separate these parts of ourselves, and the thing is we shouldn't. Managing it all, the glorious mess of it all, makes us better leaders if we're intentional about the mess we dwell in. And oh my gosh, things can get messy. For those of us anxious achievers who strive to reach perfection, we have to seriously readjust our expectations when we become working parents. But I really believe, and I really believe this, that we become better leaders by wading through the imperfect mess. This is something my next guest understands well. Stu Friedman is a professor at the Wharton School of Business, and he's co-author of the book, Parents Who Lead, The Leadership Approach You Need to Parent with Purpose, Fuel Your Career, and Create a Richer Life. I'll never forget um, you telling me about early in your career in the 80s when you first started talking about work and life. Now, it seems much more normal to talk about our life outside of work, especially if we're serious professionals and you're far along in your career, your children are adults. Mm -hmm. But back in the 80s, when you first began looking at issues of parenting in the workplace, did people think you were crazy? What what did they think (laughs) of you? So, you know, I, I started teaching at Wharton uh, in 1984, and my research practice at the time was on leadership development and how companies develop and select their their leadership talent. But then when my first child was born, this was after two miscarriages, hmm. so uh, we were classified as anxious parents because of our... You know, fragility with respect to, you know, is this going to work? Is, you know, is this child going to go to term? We were pretty nervous about all that. But when he arrived, I was, uh, I was kind of stunned. And I have found since, of course, that many people are radically transformed in their thinking about themselves when, when they meet a child that, you know, that they've, been a part of creating. Anyway, I, I I was consumed with this question of what am I now going to do to make the world a safe one for for Gabriel to grow up in? It wasn't normal to be talking about uh, children and families uh, at that time, especially for a man at the Wharton School. Right. Uh, so one of the students, a, 
uh, said to me in response to my question, what are you going to do as, as future business leaders to help to create a world in which the next generation can thrive? One of them said, well, you're the professor. You tell us. <laughs> that question that came back to me shifted my orientation to my own career. And I uh, started working on this as a question that I thought I could address and bring some useful knowledge to to the business world and to the world more generally about how can people integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that works for all of them. Let's put you on the spot. What is the answer to your question now in 2020? What what is What is the number one takeaway? You've done this research for many years. You've probably counseled thousands of leaders who are also parents. Well, I think the most important thing is to uh, to look inside and to be as courageous as you can be in addressing the question of what you really care about. Hmm. That's that's the fundamental question. And, and as it turns out, it's the fundamental question that we have to ask people and ourselves uh, in order to grow as leaders. What are your values? What do you stand for? What is your purpose in life? Fundamental, you know, the basic question. Uh, what I find is that having yes taught, coached uh, tens of thousands of people on this uh, question over the years is uh, that most people don't ask themselves that question often enough. And without some grasp of what is core to who you are and how you see yourself as a person in this world, it's really hard, if not impossible, to find a way to then make mindful intentional choices about how you devote your your resources and your attention. To me, that's where the trifecta of parenting leadership and anxiety hits home. For so many of us, the values question is unresolved between is our attention mostly focused to our work or to our parenting? And maybe this isn't possible, but it seems to me after having read your book and knowing your work that if if more parents could be centered on their values, they would experience a lot less conflict over that over that question of am I a career driven person first or a parent first? Mm-hmm. Because we, we're all different and there's a lot of judgment from society, from our family, from ourselves, and it creates tremendous anxiety. It's essential to identify what you care about in your life and then to be clear about the world you're trying to create. You know, what's the vision of what you're trying to uh, make happen in the world and to talk to the people around you who you care about and who care about you about what it is that you care about and <laughs> what they expect of you. What most people find when they do that with people at work, people, you know, their spouses or partners, their fa- extended family, their friends, the people that they choose as important to them, uh, what I call stakeholders in your future, people who you care about, people who you, again, choose as important in your life. And when you talk to those people about, you know, you're an important person to me, here's why you're important to me, and I want to strengthen our connection and talk about how we can be supportive of each other and what we need from each other. What most people find when they do that is that other people have lower and somewhat different expectations for them than they had thought. 
Mm. You know, the, the, what we carry around in our own heads about what we think other people expect of us is usually wrong. Can we talk about the tendency to over-deliver um, <laughs> and, and try to be perfect? This is something that you, you touch on in your book, in your work. It really rang true with me. And, um, you know, for anxious people, I, I had Dr. Alice Boys on the show last season, and she talked about the tendency of, of anxious people to over-deliver almost chronically, right? Because of fear of failure, because of fear of not matching up. Um, as managers, you can overmanage, you can work too hard, you cannot let your people breathe, you can lead, lead too hard. You can, I believe, parent too hard, actually. Um, oh, absolutely. Right? And, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm curious what your point of view is on perfectionism, which is not only a problem for many of us and a symptom of our anxiety, but is also sort of a societal pressure, you know? I mean, those of us who get to a certain place in our career, who parent in a certain way, we didn't get there by accident. We may have a tendency to push too hard. If it's not perfect, why do it? If my kids aren't perfect, why do it? So Mm. talk a little bit about, you know, your philosophy on stripping back away from the tendency to be perfect and over-deliver as a parent and as a leader. I think it's one of those things that if it's a part of how you've been operating your whole life, then you're never really going to change it. Mm. But but you can mitigate against its destructive tendencies, and, and it's possible to, to do that. You know, in my experience, the, the best way to, to try to reduce the destructive qualities of, per- of perfectionism, which has benefits, of course. You, know, you, you, you put in extra effort, you strive to do well, um, and naturally that's going to help you to a point it can it can result in diminishing returns, and what I have found is that the more realistic you are about what you can deliver, and most importantly, what other people really expect of you, not what you think they expect. And you might have to ask them, which is uncomfortable. Well, you have to. You ha- You must. <laughs> no. No, but there's a way to do it, Maura, that is... Not so scary. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm going to lay some wisdom on you now. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> now, this I'm, one I know. I'm nervous, but okay. Of course you're nervous. Everyone is. And you're probably anxious because you think that what's going to happen is that you're going to hear people tell you, you know, what a failure you are and how you're just not cutting it, that you're not doing enough or that mm-hmm. you're not doing the right things well enough. That's what most people fear. So how do you do it? You think about the people who matter to you. And then you ask yourself, why does this person matter to me? And that's best done after you've done some serious thinking about your vision, you know, the world you're trying to create. And a good way to do that, really simple, anyone can do this, is imagine a day 15 years from now, what do you do in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, with whom, and why are you doing what you're doing? What's the intent? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So obviously, Stu, we don't, we don't parent in a vacuum, just like we don't work in a, a vacuum. And challenges in, in your relationships can impact your mental health, which can impact your leadership, your presence, your mental presence at work. It can... You know, it can sap your will to lead if there's a lot of stress and strain in your relationships, right, that that you bring in your head. You know, there's such an added layer for a lot of people out there who um, might have a child who has a, a physical or mental disability or, or an added sort of um, condition that creates strain. It might make you very anxious. I, I know that you've had that experience, and I'd love to hear what it was like for you, and, and I know you're not in the thick of that maybe now, but when you were in the thick of parenting, working, trying to build your reputation, how you kept it all together, how you kept it in perspective? Well, I have three children. Uh, they're 32, 29, and 26, two boys and a girl. When our middle child uh, was 13, he had a psychotic break and was thereafter diagnosed with uh, schizoaffective disorder and mm -hmm. a lot of anxiety. Uh, and that was a turning point in my life. And, you know, our household just exploded. And I was completely, you know, disrupted <laughs> in my, my work and in virtually every aspect of my life because we didn't know how to cope. Right. Mind you, my wife's a clinical psychologist, and I had training in that. I, I worked for a couple of years with with schizophrenics on a chronic schizophrenic ward of a of a of a private hospital wow. in New England. So I I knew a lot about this more than most people, and yet we were just uh, terribly disturbed. Our other children were, you know, radically affected. Particularly our youngest, mm -hmm. uh, she was ten, and you know, just emerging into adolescence. And uh, we had to devote so much of our attention and resources to trying to figure out how to deal with uh, with with a, a child who was in deep, deep need. Mm. Therapeutic, medical uh, interventions, schools, uh, et cetera. His, his life's trajectory, I mean, the, the, the awful and the terrible... <laughs> 
tragic aspect of, of this illness is that his older brother and younger sister, you know, they both had Ivy League educations. They're smart, you know, wonderful people doing good work in education, both of them. Uh, but he was way smarter and, you know, had talent as a musician, uh, as an athlete um, that just got crushed by mm. this disabling uh, illness. You know, how did it affect me and my career? I, I had... Uh, my wife and I, our family, we had a great support system. We had developed over a long period of time uh, a, a set of close-knit connections with other families, uh, raising children together, um, and family who were helping us along the way. And we, we relied on them for emotional support, uh, all kinds of support. You know, it's funny. I think one of the things for my experience, and, and, and my son is not that severe, but parenting a special needs child is the way that it it, it, it doesn't leave you throughout your work day because, you know, they're in school usually during your work day. And um, it, it's an issue can always emerge in the middle of the mm -hmm. work day. And, and I'm not a good compartmentalizer. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you were able, if you learned skills mm -hmm. to disintegrate, I know you're big on yeah. work-life integration, but to disintegrate work and well, life in order to keep your focus at work. Well, so integration doesn't mean blending or merging. It means intelligently managing the boundaries between the different parts of life. And sometimes that means mm. merging and sometimes it means segmenting and keeping them separate. Okay. So uh, how you keep them separate, you know, the only way to be able to do that psychologically, you know, to to be able to focus is to know that you've done what you can to to ensure that your your child's uh, well being is is being you know addressed in as best way you you possibly can, and to stay connected you know in the in the spaces you know, between throughout the day where you where you can and 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 must be available. Now, in my work and life, I've had a lot of flexibility, so it's easier for me to do that, mm -hmm. and and I also had a partner who was able to devote her her you know the, the you know, prime years to to caring for our family right mm -hmm. so my my wife is also now my business partner we have a small business she's also my research partner and you know she's <laughs> she's my lawyer and accountant and everything else and 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 we're partners in everything and we were partners in this and that was really important and she was able to take what she had learned as a clinical psychologist and, and try to use her skills and knowledge and contacts to help us cope. So that helped a ton for me to, you know, because I trusted her with everything, I could, I could devote my attention elsewhere. That being said, for me, uh, to see what, how his life has unfolded and what progress he has made in learning to understand himself and accept himself and to still give expression to his incredible generosity. You know, he's acutely sensitive. Uh, but And he is also just remarkably generous and thoughtful and really funny. Uh, he, he, he makes me very proud, you know, to, to see the, you know, the, how he has been able to deal with um, just a, a, a tragic illness that most people don't understand, which is a terrible thing. You know, there's a lot of stigma associated, of course, as you know, with with mental illness, and uh, you know, that's been a that's been a a very difficult part of this journey for all of us. 
I mean, looking back, are there ways that having this experience has made you a stronger leader? Uh, no doubt. There's so many ways, but the the one that is, I think, most prominent in my thinking is to accept people for who they are and to love them as they are and to realize that my role as his father is to help him to grow into the person that he can be and that I have to you know try to devote all of my attention to that you know when it, when it's me and him or when I'm you know thinking about him and making decisions that affect him not what I want for him but what he wants for him that's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life and it's I struggle with it still You just heard from Wharton professor Stu Friedman, who studied parenting and also has the gift of hindsight. When your children are still small and you're in the thick of caring for a child with special needs, it can be a whole different story. And if you, like me and like our next guest, have spent your life always trying to be the best, you expect, of course, that your parenting will fall in line. You've made a detailed plan for everything to be exactly right, and you believe that this means everything will also go right with your kids. In fact... They'll be perfect, just like you were. You can spot my irony, right? Our guest today is Serene Noor Ali, co-founder at Visible Health. And she and I share something in common. The fact that our carefully considered strategies to be high-achieving working moms got derailed by life and by children who demand a high level of care. For Serene, the shock came when her second baby started missing developmental milestones, those checkpoints every pediatrician reviews with you at regular office visits, a family member had noticed something and spoken up. And like me, Serene didn't want to hear it because she had a plan. The most prominent feeling that comes back to me a lot is we were waiting for a call from the specialist who had done a diagnostic exam. And I had completely believed that the results were going to be normal or like one slight small thing. And I got the call and she was telling me the news and I was in so much shock that I walked into the lobby of a random office building and sat on the floor and cried when she told me the news. I was devastated. Like I didn't understand what she was telling me because I hadn't expected it. Like I had constructed the worst case scenario in my head and this was a scenario that was so far-fetched. And that still sticks with me. Like, I realize that I can get really myopic about how I understand the world. And I need someone to tell me. Like, it happened again, actually, this December with the same set of family who have saved me in a lot of ways with this. And they recognize something in my older daughter that I didn't recognize. And I realized, for example, in this specific example, that my older daughter was becoming a perfectionist the way that I'm a perfectionist. And that is a whole nother level of anxiety. And we've been able to course correct. And I'm really proud of us because, you know, we sat and we're like, okay, this is what's happening. And I, because I'm in therapy twice a week, <laughs> I also recognize that it was me. Like I saw the way that she felt the need to be perfect for everyone the way that I feel the need to be perfect for everyone. There's so like we it, motherhood doesn't come with a playbook that would be super nice, but we're all doing our best. Like no one can accuse us of not doing our best, and yet 
When we realize we did something that impacted our kids, like, we can't let it go. Of course, Serene eventually learned to let go, learned to find a new path for her career and her family. And she found, as I have, just how big a gift our special needs children have given us. So tell us a little bit, you have a company now. What was your life like before you became an entrepreneur? I, well, immediately before starting the company, I was, I had left my career to take care of my daughter. We had found out about a year and a half ago that she had an underlying medical condition. And, but when I left, I was actually working at a large education company leading a team um, business development and new ventures and had a career as an executive in education technology. And before that, I was a diplomat and a civil servant with the Department of State. So very different things. Was it intentional that you left to take care of your daughter? This was your second child, right? This is my second child. Yeah. It sort of, it was intentional in that I realized I couldn't get her what she needed unless I had more time and bandwidth. And I could only be accountable to myself at that point and her. Like being accountable to a team's metrics or a boss wasn't going to let me do what I needed to do for her. So you did end up being, I guess, a version of a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. <laughs> but it was incredibly stressful. What why and what happened? Can you talk about a little bit about your daughter and, and what that looked like, what that schedule looked like and that um, new era looked like when you were with her? Yeah, it's, you know, it's weird because my mind doesn't let me remember everything. I think it's a form of coping. Um, but it required me to make, to get up somehow get one child out the door and think about what insurance, what am I going to talk to the insurance companies about? And really in investigative terms, how am I going to figure out what my daughter needs? Um, because there was no one at, I realized that no one was steering the ship. And then I was like, Oh my God, I'm steering the ship. Right. You keep so, waiting for the grownups to come in, don't you? I know. And they don't show up. <laughs> it's it's astounding and then you look at yourself and I was like I guess I am the grown-up and you know when you're dealing with a child with medical issues what you don't know is that the doctor that you're sitting with like is sitting with you for 15 minutes but they're not necessarily steering your case outside of the face-to-face -face time that you have with them like that's 100% on the caregiver do you think that when you sort of before you started your company, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you were sort of in a, a limbo and not working, did you grieve your career or were you just too busy to think about that? I was cranky about my career because I didn't sit with the grief. Um, and that's what I find. Like my default mo emotion when I should be grieving is actually just continuous annoyance. And so I was continuously annoyed that this was my situation. And it like resentful it's, that you were stuck with this? Yes. Yes. I was not pleasant to be around. Um, I felt like this was forced on me, 
But in reality, it was a choice I made. And that has been an important lesson in this process. I wanted to know at the end of my days that I have done the most I can do for my kids. There is literally nothing more important to me in life than that. And so I had the option to make the choice and I had the privilege to exercise the choice that I wanted. But it's taken me a while to realize that like, to get out of the resentment. And there's a part of me that's still resentful. Um, but at least it's more on the other side now. What was the moment where you thought, I'm going to found a startup? Was there a moment? The moment came when I saw the opportunity to join a startup generator program called Antler. And the premise of the program was that they helped you meet a co-founder and they would help build out a startup idea that you had. So you didn't need to have something fully baked. And I'm like, you know what? I've been through so much in the past two two years. And my dad had passed away right before my younger one was born. And I felt so beaten by life that I wasn't going to beat myself up again by a job that wasn't exciting. And I wasn't going to do that to someone else who was my employer. And so it was low risk for me to do this startup program. Doesn't sound low risk. You know why? It was low risk because I wasn't making money. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that financial reality we had already been living with and had planned for. So for me to take, you know, two months off to see if this idea I had was, you know, had merit actually seemed like a better position to be in. You know, I think when I talked about it with my husband, he was like, you seem so excited about this that I want you to do it because you have been saying to me that you're lost and you've been lost for a while. And so how was how was Visible Health born? Did you come into this accelerator with a proper like business plan and, you know, path to market and all that stuff? No. The only thing I came into this accelerator with was the ability to be okay if I was wrong. Like I came in so raw, like such a raw version of myself that I didn't, it didn't really bother me if people didn't like me. It didn't really bother me if people like had an issue with the fact that I was opinionated because I, again, I was, it was so primal at that point. I was so beaten that I was like, let's test this out. Um, you know, I, I think the anxiety that I had going into the accelerator was that I hadn't really been in a, in a work culture for a long time Mm -hmm. and I wasn't prepared to do all the networking. And I'm like, seeing that many people, it was, I mean, it was sort of like a scene out of like, he's like a fish out of water. Like, what am I doing? Like, why are there so many people around me? Why do I have to talk to so many people? I just want to go home and like sit on Facebook. Um, But part of me had anticipated that. And so I gave myself permission not to do it. And that was critical. So like people would go for drinks at five and I'd be like, okay, I'm going home. Maybe you were more authentic also in your, in your pitching of the business and your development of it. Yeah. We had to introduce ourselves to each other the first week and and then I had 
incidentally told a woman right before I went up that I was going to talk about being a parent. And she laughed and she's like, that's so funny because I purposely did not bring up the fact that I'm a parent. And I said, okay, let's A-B test it and see how this room reacts because this room was not a room full of parents by any means. It was a room mostly full of younger men. And for the first time in my life, I stood up there and I said, you know, I've never said this before, but I'm a special needs parent. And I'm not sure what this means, but I do know that there is a market of parents here that could be consumers to solutions that make their life easier and help their children optimize their health. And I will die on a sword. I felt very powerful in that moment. Like my life froze for those five minutes because I didn't realize just how deeply I felt about it. And I still feel so deeply about it. And the best thing that came out of that moment was my co-founder. Why, why is running a startup not killing you? Are you sleeping? Are you living? Like what, what about it makes it sustainable for you? <laughs> I, it is my healing. It is so hard to see your child and other children not get the medical treatment that could help them for a lack, you know, because of, in this case, information inefficiencies, it, it almost broke me inside. And when we were doing the customer discovery for the startup, we would talk to parents. I talked to a friend whose child was probably going to pass away. I talked to another friend whose child was diagnosed with autism only to find out four years later that had they gotten the genetic test, a genetic test, that they would have found out it was a regressive form of autism. The helplessness of like opting in to find out these stories and not being able to do anything is probably going to catapult us for the rest of our days in a startup. Because I think as humans, if you see something that can be corrected and you can figure out how to be helpful, like you have to do it. And like, it's not harder, honestly, than having like staying home and figuring out my daughter's care at all. It's like, I still don't sleep. <laughs> I didn't sleep then. I don't sleep now. Um, and if anything, because I get to form my own schedule, I don't have to tell anyone except Alex that, hey, listen, I got to take my daughter to the doctor or or. Like, yes, I had, I have to tell our investors that like, you know, my daughter had surgery earlier this month. Like I'm going to be offline. What are they going to say? They're not going to say no. There's something about, I think, I think, you know, parenting makes you incredibly vulnerable and incredibly strong. And I always think that those are the two best leadership qualities that a person can have. I may be in the minority, but, um, the silly thing is that for me as a, as a leader, you know, with a small L, I'm not running a country, but I run a company and a lot of days I will get a call from school. My son is in elementary school and he acts out and school's really hard for him. And so I'll get a call from school. Something bad happened. He's out of control. He said something. He hit someone. I don't know. And I will be plunged into 
anxiety, fear, anger, and some grief. Like, why? You know, especially around academic stuff. Like, you're so smart. Why can't you just do this simple math thing? Like, you're going to fail. Like, what's going to... And then I spin out. I spin out 20 years from now. But it has also forced me to be incredibly resilient and to be more more comfortable with uncertainty and lack of control, which is something that I sort of desperately needed because all my life I've just been trying to control outcomes and make them better and just being hypervigilant and trying. And when he was little, I could, I could, I could totally supervise every single early intervention and every therapy and make sure he got everything in his schedule was so full. And now I can do that, but it doesn't sometimes seem to make a damn bit of difference. Mm-hmm. And I have to accept that. Yeah, it's hard though. It is so hard to accept a different vision for your child than the one that you had before. And, you know, it makes my, it scares me so much that even talking about it makes my stomach turn. And one of the things that my, our speech therapist tells us is, you know, she sort of gently coaches me to say, like, you can't measure her against anyone else. You can't. And it's amazing how ingrained that was in me to do that. Well, and we're in a... I you were yeah. perfect, weren't you? I mean, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Isn't that why we do everything we do? Um it's hard. Like I, I'm still working on it. And if I'm going to be totally honest, I am buffered by the fact that my daughter is going to make a full recovery. Um, and that's not lost on me. You know, I, I, there's these, you know, there's these things that sit in your head and like one is when I got the phone call from the specialist that something was wrong. And I think about this past December when, you know, we're in the process of there's all these milestones in terms of um, the transition for intervention. And so we're ready for our next milestone where it transfers government departments. And I got the report back. It read way worse than I thought was happening. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand. And I called my husband and we were working fairly in similar places in the city. And I'm like sobbing and I'm like, I just can't handle this right now. Like this is too hard for me. And so we ended up meeting up and he's a very, you know, he gives me a lot of emotional relief in those moments. And I'm like, but that still sticks with me because I don't, so I'm not a smoker. Um, but that was the, there are three moments in my life where I've wanted to smoke. And that was one of them for no rational reason, except that I was really stressed out. And so I told my husband, I was like, I need to go find a pack of cigarettes. And I was like, I don't even know to go. Like literally I have no idea where to go buy a pack of cigarettes, (laughs) but I was that overwhelmed and stressed. And a cigarette seemed like the next logical thing I should have. I, I was smiling also thinking like the beautiful thing is, is that, when you're when your kids do incredible things and they surprise you with their incredibleness, it's that much more. Um, and that's the upside of accepting uncertainty, you know, 
but it lets you see a lot of beauty, right? Like I think I see a lot more beauty in life now. There's no guarantee that any child, you know, is going to live the life that a parent has for them, right? Like things change on a dime. And now I look at my children and I delight in them in a way that is the best thing that has ever happened to me in life. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to do with the fact of like my younger one's trajectory and my optimism about that. Like I felt this way in even the worst moments of not knowing. And there's a lot of stuff quite honestly that we don't know, but it's like, it brings you back to things that are simple and joyous in that acceptance. Oh, thank you so much, Sarit. I wish you, I wish you so much luck. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew, and thanks to the team at HBR, to our guests for sharing their experiences and truth, thanks to our advertisers, and for you, the listeners. I'm so grateful for your feedback. You can always email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at moraam. And if you love the show, tell your friends or subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Mora Aaron's Mealy.